All right. Welcome to the Opportunity Starts at Home podcast, where we talk about opportunity in America today and how housing fundamentally shapes that opportunity. This is your host, Mike Kaprowski. I'm the National Director of the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign, and we're glad that you tuned in. We are a national campaign that advocates for stronger federal policies that expand affordable housing for the lowest income people. But what makes us different is that we're bringing together new voices from other sectors to help us do it. Sectors like health, education, civil rights, anti-poverty, anti-hunger, faith-based, and more. These sectors are increasingly realizing that they can't fully achieve their own goals and priorities if the people they serve lack access to safe, decent, affordable housing. So we're building a multi-sector coalition and we're broadening the housing movement. This podcast really explores the connections between housing and all of these other sectors. Housing policy is school policy, health policy, economic policy, civil rights policy, criminal justice policy, and more. Few things shape our opportunity more than housing. We have lots of evidence about it, yet housing is often overlooked by our leaders and our policymakers. But being able to afford a decent home is a prerequisite for opportunity in America. The promises that our elected leaders make every election cycle, better health, better economic opportunity, better education, those things can only be fulfilled if people have access to good affordable homes in which to live. So we talk to research experts, we talk to leading advocates from different sectors, and we talk to elected officials. I hope you enjoy and hope you learn something too. All right. Well, I'm quite excited for today's episode. We're here with John King, who was the U.S. Secretary of Education under President Obama and is currently the president and CEO of the Education Trust, which is a national nonprofit organization that seeks to identify and close opportunity and achievement gaps from pre-K to college. Before becoming Education Secretary, he carried out the duties of the U.S. Deputy Secretary of Education, and before that, he was the first African-American and Puerto Rican to serve as New York State Education Commissioner. He began his career as a high school social studies teacher in Puerto Rico and in Boston, as well as a middle school principal. He holds a BA in government from Harvard, a JD from Yale, as well as an MA in the teaching of social studies, and a doctorate in education from the Teachers College at Columbia University. And personally, I've looked up to him for, for several years now. As you'll hear in the podcast, he was the the first Secretary of Education in many decades to explicitly prioritize economically and racially diverse schools. Um, and he started doing that right as I was starting to make the case for school integration in Dallas when I worked in the school system. And I remember talking about my plans to the Dallas School Board and they were giving me funny looks. And I remember being able to point to, to Secretary King and say, look, I'm not crazy. School diversity matters. The Secretary of Education is saying it. Um, and he's been a really strong voice that, that housing, housers and educators should collaborate and coordinate because housing policy is school policy. So he's really a perfect guest for this podcast, which focuses on the intersections of housing and other sectors. So Secretary King, thanks for being with us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, so our, our offices in DC are pretty close, but here we are in Los Angeles and we, we finally mm -hmm. meet and we were, we were treadmill neighbors this morning in the hotel. So it's funny how that all works out. I guess we just wanted to find some warmer weather uh, right, from, the, right. from the snow in DC. Um, so today we're gonna talk about housing and education, but first I wanted the audience to hear uh, from you about yourself. You have an incredibly compelling life story. I I'm hoping you can uh, share it with folks and, and talk about why it motivates you to do the work that you do. Tell us about the sure. stuff that's not in the official bio. Sure, sure. Um, well, you know, education is very much a part of my family history. Mm -hmm. Both my parents were New York City public school teachers. 
my mother came to New York from uh, Puerto Rico, where she was born. Uh, came to the Bronx as a kid, went to New yeah. York City Public Schools, became a teacher. My father was African-American, grew up in Brooklyn just after the turn of the 20th century. Okay. And, you know, it's highly segregated, sure. very limited opportunities, and he saw a path through education and, and became a teacher and a principal. Yeah. And they both spent their whole careers in, in New York City public schools. And I grew up in Brooklyn, going to New York City public schools. Mm-hmm. Um, but both my parents passed away when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom... Uh, passed away in October of my fourth grade year as eight. Um, And then I lived with my dad. My dad was quite sick with undiagnosed Alzheimer's. Um, He was much older. And and then he passed away when I was 12. Mm -hmm. And that period when it was just my dad and me was very difficult. Home was often unstable, unpredictable, scary. Um, But school, school was amazing. I just Mm -hmm. was very blessed to have a series of phenomenal New York City public school teachers who made school safe, engaging, interesting, compelling, um, and saved my life. You know, there's no question in my mind that I wouldn't be alive today or or maybe I'd be in prison today, but for these amazing teachers. And even after my dad passed and I moved you know, between different family members and schools. It was always teachers, counselors, who gave me a sense of hope and possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really became a teacher out of a desire to try to do for other kids what my teachers did for me. Mm-hmm. Um, that's sort of what's driven my whole career in education. And for me, the the, the biggest challenge uh, that we try to work on at, at Ed Trust is, is that we don't do a good enough job yeah. serving our low-income students and students of color. Yeah. And so that so often in our country we give the least to the kids who need the most. Yeah. Uh, less access to quality preschool, less access to effective teachers, less access to school counselors, less access to advanced coursework, less access to resources. And we try to trust to change that reality, working together with the civil rights community, the business community, mm-hmm. parents, educators, uh, students themselves, to, to try to change public policy. Awesome. Well said. Yeah. Tackling those systemic barriers that are just so, so prevalent. And one of those systemic barriers is housing. Um, and so I wanted to, to get into that conversation. And also, you know, I think there's, there's so many different angles you could take about the intersections of housing and schools. I mean, you could talk about how school districts need available housing that's affordable to teachers in order to recruit and retain. You could talk about the connection between school funding and local property taxes. And um, you all uh, did a did a recent uh, report that pointed out that the highest poverty school districts receive roughly less than $1,000 per pupil in state and local funding than the wealthiest districts. So you could talk about the connection of how schools are funded. You could talk about the stability piece of you know when when parents can't afford the rent, they're more likely to bounce around and get evicted and potentially become homeless, and that carries over into the classroom and affects student learning. You could talk about high rents. You could talk about the housing affordability crisis in the country that rents are skyrocketing, wages are flat, half of all renters in this country cannot afford the rent, and when rent eats up income, parents have less leftover income for all the out-of-school activities, the you know the enrichment activities that wealthier parents take for granted, the zoos and the summer camps and all those sorts of things. But there's one um, there's one angle 
that I really wanted to spend our time on today. Um, and that is the connection between housing segregation mm-hmm. and school segregation. I mean, we could do a separate episode on all of those things that I laid out, but I, I really wanted to focus on the segregation piece. I think it's, it's an area that you showed tremendous leadership on when you were Secretary of Education. Um, it's an area where there's mountains of compelling research. Um, and, and my personal view is that it's, it's probably the most significant of all the, all the connections. So I wanted to, to first ask you about school segregation, and then we'll kind of get into housing segregation um, later. But, you know, you say school segregation, and it conjures up things in people's heads, and they think about all sorts of, all sorts of things. So talk to us about wh- what does school segregation in America look like today? What are we talking about when we say yeah. school segregation today? Yeah, unfortunately, you know, I think a lot of people think to themselves, well, we had Brown versus Board of Education yeah. in 1954. You know, we sort of dealt with school yeah, we're segregation. All good yeah. and, 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 you know, everyone knows about the fights over busing and places like Boston. I think, well, that's an old problem. Right. Um, but the reality is in many parts of the country, schools are more segregated today than they were even 10, 20 years ago. Right. Um, Disproportionately, African-American students and Latino students are, are concentrated in schools where there's not only racial isolation, but also socioeconomic right. isolation. So right. you've got schools that are almost entirely students of color and almost entirely students living in poverty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that creates a more challenging context. Yeah. Uh, it often means less access to resources right. because given, as you said, the connection between property taxes and school spending, um, what we see in those schools is that they are significantly Mm under-resourced. Even within districts, uh, sadly, we see that districts often send more resources to their schools that are serving affluent kids who have very active, engaged, demanding parents, and less resources to their schools of concentrated poverty. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's a resource disparity, but there's also... Um, a concentration of challenge, right? Yeah. If you have more students in a school who are homeless, you have more students in a school who are hungry, you have more students in a school who are experiencing the consequences of violence in the community, uh, substance abuse, mm-hmm. all of that then is concentrated in that, in, in that yeah. building. Yeah. And for teachers, that makes it a much more challenging environment, yeah. um, much harder to serve kids effectively. Now that said, all over the country you can find, and, and I ran a school like this, schools that are made up entirely of students of color, right. entirely low-income students that are getting great outcomes. Yeah. So I don't want to suggest that it is impossible, but it is for sure harder when you concentrate um, students who are in poverty in a subset of schools. Right. And so to me, and you know, you were part of this work in Dallas, the question mm-hmm. for school leaders is how do we approach education policy and housing policy in a way that increases the likelihood that our schools will be racially and socioeconomically diverse. Yeah. Because we know that that helps lead to better academic outcomes, but also it leads to important positive civic outcomes. Right. We want kids to be exposed to students who are different from them. And it's important for kids of color. It's important for white kids. That's right. We need yeah. white kids to have interactions with students who are diverse if we want to have a healthy, well-functioning democracy. Um, And it's doable. There are places all over the country that are doing it. Yeah, well said. Um, It's, uh, I mean, I think what what you're saying is that integrated learning environments are the optimal learning environments, and that really it's a a yes and. 
that yes, we have to focus on improving high poverty schools because they're not going away anytime in the near future. But at the same time, we can walk and chew gum. We can figure out how to promote more integrated learning environments because we know that that's optimal, not just in terms of improving test scores, but the, the civic outcomes and all the other things that, that you mentioned as well. So the, the research around uh, school integration is very powerful. You highlighted some of that. I think it's some of the most powerful research in all of uh, education research. Um, do, do you think that it's too often overlooked by those in the education community as a, as a, as a realistic reform strategy that can improve outcomes, close gaps, uh, improve student performance? Is it, is it overlooked in your mind? I think it is I, for a few reasons. I think one, um, there are certainly places where given the realities of the local demographics, it is hard to imagine how it could be achieved. Right. Right. So you think about sort of isolated rural communities where it would be very difficult yeah. to achieve a yeah. degree of racial and socioeconomic integration. Or you think about some cities where uh, there's such intense racial and socioeconomic mm -hmm. isolation that it's, it doesn't feel like a viable strategy. So right. I think that's one right. of the reasons yeah. why people don't pay attention to it. Two, I think people look at the politics. Yeah. You know, they've, they've watched the Eyes on the Prize series. They've right. seen the, the parents throwing rocks at mm -hmm. buses in, in Boston. Or they've uh, listened to Nicole Hannah-Jones, her um, uh, This American Life mm -hmm. podcast mm -hmm. uh, about school segregation, uh, where she captures recent parent yeah. meetings in Missouri yeah. where the parents are intensely... Uh, resistant yeah. to school integration. Yeah. It's rhetoric that you thought died long ago, but it's within the That's past right. couple of years. That's yeah. right. And yeah. so people think to themselves, gosh, I don't know if I want to take mm -hmm. that on. You even look at New York City. You know, the New York Times has done a series of stories where affluent um, parents have resisted mm -hmm. uh, the potential for racial and socioeconomic integration of their kids' schools. Yeah. So people, are, I think, are a little bit scared away by mm -hmm. the politics. And I think there's also a worry of not trying to create an excuse, right? You don't want to send the message that because we have, in a given school, low-income students and students of color, we can't do better. Right. And so I think there's a hesitation to talk about it um, because people don't, don't want, to, want to undermine the sense of urgency in those right. schools. Right, yeah, you don't want to... Um yeah, you don't want to use poverty as a, as a crutch for, for poor instruction, That's right. Um, I, I was thinking back to when you were talking about that in Dallas when we first started pushing this. Um, a lot of folks said, well, you know, we're, we're an 85 90% free and reduced price lunch district. How could you ever achieve any meaningful integration? And, and when we dug a little bit deeper into the numbers, we realized that the city itself wasn't that poor. It was just all the affluent families had opted out of mm -hmm. the public school system altogether. So we really had to focus on bringing affluent families back to the district, but not bringing them back into their own islands of affluence, bringing them into integrated learning environments. So That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. And I think there is a lot of opportunity in um, a lot of American cities where you do have um, young professionals who are living in the city who need to have a vision of why they should send their kids to the city schools, why they should stay yeah. in the city, not move out to the suburbs right. after their kids hit school age. Yeah. But it's also worth noting that a lot of times when we look at a city, we'll say, well, 80, 90% of the kids are free and reduced price lunch eligible. But that's actually a pretty broad that's right. Yeah. Spectrum, yeah. right? Um, San Antonio, I think, as, as I'm sure you know, is doing mm -hmm. really interesting work saying, actually, let's look within that number yeah. 
And what they've found in San Antonio is they've got schools. Yeah, all the kids are free and reduced price lunch eligible, but they're actually all at the very bottom of the uh, income scale in right. the city. Right. And so they've got socioeconomic segregation within the category of right. students who are free and reduced price lunch right. eligible. And what they've started to do is to be intentional about saying, let's not concentrate our kids who are most vulnerable, whose families are making even under $10,000 a year. Let's not concentrate all those kids in a subset of schools. Let's make sure we're doing what we can uh, to have socioeconomic integration within that category. Right. It's a tiering of poverty, essentially, that there's there's a big difference between a kid that maybe is just under the reduced, pr the, the reduced price lunch line and a kid living in abject poverty. Yes. There's a big difference, and there's still value in integrating exactly. within that. That's, exactly. Um, yeah, Mohamed Chaudhary is leading that work in mm -hmm. San Antonio. Mm -hmm. uh, he worked for me in, in Dallas, and now he's, he's taking it really to new heights in San Antonio. So I always joke with him that I taught him everything he knows, but <laughs> really he, he taught me more than I had probably ever taught him. So um, I wanted to, to talk about your time at the Department of Education. Um, your predecessor, Arnie Duncan, um, said in an interview with the 74 that uh, he should have done more on desegregation while in office. Um, and you began to explicitly prioritize it when you took over in 2016. Uh, you were the first education secretary in many, many years to explicitly prioritize school diversity. You launched a competitive grant program called Stronger Together that asked districts to develop plans to increase student diversity. Why did you prioritize this at the, at the federal level? I mean, you're Secretary of Education, you can prioritize a number of issues, which you did. This wasn't the only priority, of course. But, but what made you put this at sort of one of the key pillars of your work? Yeah, well, I, I think it's one of the most important things we need to do as a country to improve, mm -hmm. um, again, not only education, but the health and well-being of our democracy. Yeah. We have to be thoughtful about how we achieve a more integrated society. Um, two, I think part of the, the role of the federal government um, is to use the bully pulpit, if you will, mm -hmm. to advance uh, an equity agenda. Right. And the essential role of the education department is to be a civil rights agency. Right. And so when you put those two pieces together, uh, it was a natural place for the department to lead and try to say, look, we're not, we're not imposing a particular mandate on folks. We're saying, here are some resources to, to do this work mm -hmm. thoughtfully, mm -hmm. to do the kind of work that you, that you did in Dallas, yeah. that Muhammad is doing in San Antonio, to think about... Um, you know, can we create dual language schools? Can we create art schools? Can we create public Montessori's that will draw a more diverse student population? How do we do diversity in a way that is uh, thoughtful mm -hmm. um, and is um, motivating to right. a diverse set of parents? Yeah, yeah, well said. Um, I think you, you might not put it this way, but I would put it this way, is that your prioritization at the federal level gave us some cover at the local level to be able to do this. And I remember having these conversations in Dallas, and this was this was a foreign topic, quite frankly. Being able to point to the prioritization that was coming from the Department of Education was really important for us to say, this is mainstream type stuff. This is not way fringe stuff. This is mm -hmm. something that, so, so it provided us a lot of cover at the local level. And I think that's another role for the federal government is to provide some cover for, for bold local efforts as well. That, that's exactly right. And look, I, it both is heartening to hear that and when you think about 
the Trump administration and the negative messages that they are sending on this issue and, and many others related to civil rights, you also see the danger, right? So one of the first things that um, my successor, Betsy DeVos, did when she came into office was to cancel this grant program. And I think it yeah. was um, deeply problematic and sent this deeply negative message about school diversity work. You know, and they followed that by, with a series of rollbacks of civil rights protections, even some of the work we were doing to, to get folks to rethink approaches to discipline right. because we see disparities for students of color. Mm -hmm. and they've recently rolled back that work, again, sending, I think, a very negative, hostile message around civil rights enforcement. Let's talk, I want to, I want to get to housing policy in a minute, but I wanted to ask you one more question, which is independent of housing reform, um, you know, what can school districts do on their own to promote mm -hmm. diversity? And you talked a little bit about it with San Antonio and what we did in Dallas, but I wanted you to just kind of frame it at a broader level of, um, you know, oftentimes it's called controlled choice, or basically we're talking about creative enrollment policies to get kids from different backgrounds learning together in the same classroom. I wonder if you could kind of give us uh, uh, the landscape of, of different efforts that are out there, independent of any housing reform, just get within the school district, doing yeah. what you can do to get yeah. kids together. Yeah, and I know you've talked with, with Rick Tallenberg, mm -hmm. and obviously he's written quite a bit about this at the Century Foundation. I did this fantastic report on 100-plus yeah. districts around the country that are doing school diversity work and the different mm -hmm. approaches they're taking. Uh, three observations. One is we have some places around the country where the schools are more segregated than the housing. Yes. That the design, where the design of the attendance zones for schools actually makes the schools more racially and socioeconomically segregated. Yeah. Uh, I certainly, when I think about New York, where I, where I grew up in Brooklyn, if you look at the school patterns in central Brooklyn, uh, you see places where the attendance zones are as gerrymandered yeah. as any uh, politically gerrymandered yeah. uh, house district in America, right. where they're designed to produce segregation. Yeah. Uh, districts ought to dismantle that. They ought to rethink their attendance zones and get that right. Yeah. And you know, it sometimes can be as simple as saying, you know, we've got these two K-5s, they're near each other, they are segregated. Well, what if we did a K-2 and a 3-5 and they were integrated, mm -hmm, right? There, mm -hmm. there are ways to think creatively about that, but rethinking attendance zones is one. Yeah. Two is a choice strategy, a controlled choice strategy that takes into account racial and socioeconomic integration that often can be associated with new school models. You know, I mentioned earlier dual language, public Montessori, right. arts magnets, uh, STEM magnets, mm -hmm. right? thinking creatively about what kinds of opportunities uh, will help people be excited about a racially and socioeconomically diverse school. Yeah. Uh, when I was state commissioner in New York, some of our most integrated schools in some parts of the state were our career tech schools right. because they were drawing kids from multiple districts mm -hmm. and they were therefore racially and socioeconomically diverse. Mm -hmm. um, and then, a, and then a, a, th a third piece is, goes to this issue of how do you um, attract folks to the, to the public schools mm -hmm. who might not otherwise be in the public schools. Right. So I think about what DC has accomplished through uh, universal pre-K. 
universal pre-K has helped them keep young professionals living in the city and get those folks started into school communities where then they say, oh, well, my kids had such a good pre-K experience, I'm going to stay in, in the, in the right. public schools. So right. there's work to do to yeah. sort of lift up public education. Yeah. Get them in early and then they stay. That's yeah. right. That's right. Um, two thoughts I had as, as you were talking, the, the attendance zone issue. I mean, I would, I would urge folks to really pay attention and, and study how these attendance boundaries are drawn. I mean, we sort of like think they, they fell from the sky, but really they're very intentionally drawn. And I mean, I, you know, in Dallas, we called it an attendance boundary committee, and I'm sure, you know, folks have different names for it. But oftentimes there's conversations of, well, you know, we're going to draw the line so that this single family neighborhood goes here. And then the multifamily apartments with uh, they're going to go here. And these lines are drawn very cleverly along, you know, street corners and all sorts of things. So That's right. we have to pay attention to that. Um, and then the, I think the new school models is really important. I mean, that was a key piece for us is all of them were new school models, STEAM, Montessori. These were the attractive models that, that we, that were attractive to families from all backgrounds. That's um, right. And that was, that was key for us. Um, so let's talk about housing policy now. We've sort of we've we've talked about segregation, not ideal. Integrated learning environments are better, um, and surely there are things that school systems can do to promote uh, more uh, racially and socioeconomically diverse schools. But in America, about seventy-five percent of students attend school based on their neighborhood, right? Schools they are assigned to based on the neighborhood in which their their parents can afford to live. Um, and so you have segregated neighborhoods, it can lead to segregated schools when you have that uh, sort of structure. So talk to us about just kind of the, the nexus of, of housing and schools. It's, it's a very important nexus. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you raise this issue of single family versus multifamily, right? Yeah. And so, uh, look, in many communities, the zoning laws are constructed in a way that isolates people by race and socioeconomic status. Yeah. and. You know, there's a there's a long history there that's tied into America's um, legacy around mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. race, right? That sure. that that begins with uh, slavery yeah. and persists through the the, the imposition of Jim Crow mm -hmm. and persists through policies that were designed to keep people separate. Yeah. In fact, if you look at the history of some cities, the moment they put in limitations on multifamily units was the moment that families of color started to move into a given neighborhood, yeah. right? And so there there is this history that we've got to that we've got to grapple yeah. with. The result is that when you have these kind of segregated housing policies, they then translate into segregated schools. Right. Um, you also see the, the sort of causation running in the other direction that because the schools are segregated, people won't, um, white folks won't choose to move into a community when they see, right. oh, well, my kid will be the only right. white kid in this school. Right. And so it's sort of self-reinforcing yeah, yeah. over time. Mm -hmm. And so ideally what you'd want to do is use housing policy, education policy, and transportation policy to try to break down some of those barriers. Yeah. Well, that's a perfect segue into my next question. When you were Secretary of Education, you wrote a letter to local leaders along with Transportation Secretary Anthony Fox and Housing Secretary Julian Castro. And the three of you called on leaders in education, housing, and transportation to collaborate to improve outcomes. Um, talk to us about this letter and sort of how it came about. Yeah. Well, I think all three of us were really interested in these issues. You know, yeah. obviously, Julian was working on um, uh, 
policies at HUD mm -hmm. to try to ensure um, access to integrated housing. Right. Um, Secretary Fox, Anthony Fox, is working on strategies to help folks get access to opportunity through transportation. Right. And so there was sort of a natural connection mm -hmm. to the work that we were doing on, on, on school integration. Um, you know, if you think about what communities can do, I, I live in Montgomery County, Maryland. The reason my family chose Montgomery County, Maryland is Montgomery County has a 20, 30 year, 40 year history yeah. of intentional integration of housing and schools. Yeah. And so, you know, I live on a street that has a lot of single family homes, but mm -hmm. also on the corner are two apartment complexes. Yep. And so rare in America. Exactly, right? yeah. exactly. And as you drive around Montgomery County, what you see is real intentionality mm -hmm. about mixed income housing across communities. Yep. That makes a difference. It means that my kids' schools are racially and socioeconomically diverse. Yeah. It also means my kids' friends are racially and socioeconomically yeah. diverse. Yeah, the play and dates, the sports teams. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And that, that I, we see that as a tremendous blessing. It's something we love about the community. Mm -hmm. And that is, that can be replicated by other communities. Right. That's, that's sort of what um, Secretary Castro and I were hoping mm -hmm. would come mm -hmm. of that letter, it was more intentional planning on the part of communities mm -hmm. to achieve that. You know, I think it's a very hopeful sign that Minneapolis, their city council, um, is moving to, to get rid of restrictions mm -hmm. on multifamily zoning mm -hmm. across the city. I think that, that has powerful potential. Uh, when you think about transportation, I think about Baltimore. So city of Baltimore, there are segments of the city that are essentially cut off from economic opportunity yeah. because it is so hard to get to where their jobs are. Right. And uh, Secretary Fox had worked with folks at the state level. There was a planned project, the Red Line project, mm -hmm. that was going to uh, create public transportation so that folks from very high needs, communities of concentrated poverty would have access to jobs and opportunity. And unfortunately in Maryland, the current governor, Governor Hogan, canceled that project, yeah. essentially cutting people off from economic opportunity. It was the opposite of what we had hoped uh, states would do. So unfortunately, um, while I think our letter was important, it hasn't yeah. necessarily had the impact we wanted in all communities, but certainly in some communities, people have been quite in intentional, sure. like Minneapolis, in thinking about these questions. Sure. Yeah, and you, for the for the listeners of the podcast, I had uh, Secretary King just talked about Montgomery County. I would refer you back to a prior episode that we did with Heather Schwartz, who did the study yes. on Montgomery County, yes. and again, not something that happened by accident, a product of intentional policy that prioritize diversity. So I think that was maybe episode three. So uh, if you all haven't checked that out, please do. It's a really, really good episode that, that highlights what, what the secretary just talked about. So we're talking about the intersections of these different um, sectors. And, and our campaign is about, you know, bringing advocates together from these different sectors to push on federal housing policy. And, and education is one of those sectors, of course, that we really want to bring into the fold and help us advocate for better housing policies. Um, and, you know, I spent several years in the education sector, and now I'm technically in the, in the housing sector, but I don't feel like I ever really left education because if we're successful in pushing for better housing policies, I know kids will, will do better as well. So um, I wanted to ask you, how should people in the education sector think about engaging 
on housing policy? Mm -hmm. How should they think about mm -hmm. that, right? I mean, mm -hmm. they have full-time jobs, they're busy, they're focused on improving school systems, and then it's like, oh geez, housing policy is a whole other complex animal. How should they think about that? Yeah. Well, a few things. One is, I think, as citizens, right, we need to be engaged mm -hmm. on the issues that affect the kids and families that we serve. Yeah. And we have to be engaged on housing, just as I, I believe we ought to be engaged on issues of gun violence in the community and, mm -hmm. and addressing gun control and strategies to reduce violence, just as I think we ought to be engaged on climate change because yeah. we want our kids to have a, a livable earth, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, None of what we're talking about works if the climate uh, falls apart. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So yeah. I, I just think we have a responsibility as educators to, to be engaged across mm -hmm. a range of issues. Uh, that affect our, our, mm -hmm. our communities. And so when you know the city council is making a decision about zoning, we ought to care and pay attention it's to It's going to impact student achievement. No question. Yes. No yeah. question. Yeah. You know, when a city is thinking about where they're going to build new affordable housing units or mm -hmm. uh, whether what requirements are going to put in place for a developer around how many apartments in a new apartment mm -hmm. building have to be set aside for um, you know, mixed income, uh, allotments to, to lower income families, we ought to be engaged in those conversations yeah. as citizens. Yeah. Um, but then I also think there's an importance to understanding what the challenges are that kids and communities face. I think about a uh, teacher prep program that um, mm -hmm. we supported with Race of Top Dollars in New mm -hmm. York, where one of the things they did for their teacher prep candidates, uh, and you'll appreciate this given your background, mm -hmm. was to have them live uh, to take on a project, rather, to take on a project in the community where they would do their student teaching. Mm -hmm. So before they would do student teaching, they would have to do an internship with a health clinic, a domestic violence shelter, a soup kitchen, mm -hmm. a uh, child care center, some activity in the same neighborhood yeah. where the school um, was located where, where there would be student teaching. Yeah. And that was really powerful to have folks get a better understanding of the community yeah. where they worked. Yeah. And so I think it's important for educators to get to know the neighborhoods mm -hmm. of the kids and families that they serve. Yeah. Um, and to understand the challenges. Mm -hmm. to, you know, when your kids are coming to school with, you know, chips and soda for breakfast, yeah. um, that may be in part be because... There's no grocery store yeah, in desert. their neighborhood, yeah. right? right? And you ought to understand that and then say to yourself, well, I got to fix that. Let yeah. me make sure we have universal breakfast at right. our school. Right. Right. At least right. that'd be the solution I, I would sure. advocate for, sure. right? But you need to understand context, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, as you work to support kids yeah. and families. So you see it as it's not mission creep, it's mission critical. That's exactly, this is that's exactly for, for, right. an for an educator to do the best job they can do. All these other contextual variables of what happens outside of 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. That's yes. that kids are bringing into the classroom. That's no, right. Regardless, yeah. that's right. Um, I was thinking about what you were saying in terms of what what localities can do, and I was thinking back to in Dallas where they said, okay, you know, you, you, the, the I gave a presentation to the city council, and they said, okay, well, what what can we do about school diversity? And I said, well, there's a number of things you can do, but the, a really piece of low hanging fruit, and this goes exactly to what you said, is when when you're when you're you know thinking about a new affordable housing development, put a checkbox in the checklist that says, "Is this new affordable housing development going to increase school diversity, or is it going to increase school segregation?" Yes. 
make it a factor that you think about. Yes. Like require yourselves to yes. answer that question. Yes. And that's, I mean, that's it's a checkbox on their checklist that's of right. stuff that they have that's to go right. through. And, and that's just a really piece of low-hanging fruit that at least puts the conversation on that's the table. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, so without getting into the, the weeds on, on housing policy, I wanted to ask if there are a few, you've mentioned a few of them already, but a few specific housing policies that sort of pique your interest, that you mm -hmm. think, you know, for educators that are not familiar with all the different types of mm -hmm. housing policies, mm -hmm. what are a few that you really think, you know, gee, you, you should spend some time looking at this type of housing policy because it can really have an impact in education, whether it's inclusionary zoning or whatever. What what yeah. kind of rises to your yeah. to the yeah. top for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I, certainly inclusionary zoning, I, th I think I've put near the, near the top of mm -hmm. the list. Um, there's also the question of where... Uh, Section 8 housing is located right. and whether or not uh, communities are doing a good job making it possible for people to use Section 8 to move into communities right. that, uh, that are um, more socioeconomically yeah. diverse or more socioeconomically affluent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there was a lot of work that, that HUD was doing during the Obama administration around affirmatively, affirmatively furthering fair housing um, that is now being rolled back by the Trump administration, unfortunately. But a lot of that was with the intention to say, when you are either building public housing units or creating uh, voucher programs for folks to be able to, to, to get private housing with public vouchers, that you ought to be thinking about this question of um, whether or not you are furthering integration. Right. Um, and a lot, again, a lot of that's being yeah. rolled back. So that's one area of, mm -hmm. of focus. Another is this kind of how gentrification plays out in a community. Mm -hmm. This whole question of yeah. developers and what requirements are put on developers, how many units they have to set aside for low-income families. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a place where you know, mayors, city councils, county yeah. executives, um, have a huge impact, yeah. and educators, I think, need to be active in those conversations. Mm -hmm. um, you know, thinking about public housing units and where they are located. Yeah. Um, you know, there are the, there are HUD programs that allow um, communities to redevelop public housing units as mixed income. Mm -hmm. um, we've got to do that thoughtfully so that folks aren't pushed out right. of the community. Right. But that can be a way. Um, to diversify the schools and also diversify uh, some of the opportunities that are available in those mm -hmm, neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. It's so refreshing to hear a former Secretary of Education talking so nuancedly, I don't know if nuancedly is a word, <laughs> but nuancedly about housing policy. And it's, it's, it's so great to hear and it, it really speaks to the intersections of these issues. So um, I wanted to, to finish with, with one last question. You had brought up Brown versus Board mm -hmm. before, and we I think we still think of, well, we dealt with that back in 1954, but the reality is we didn't even get going on school desegregation until the 70s and 80s because Brown was so caught up in litigation. Um, and then here we are today. Um, have we made enough progress since Brown? No, not on, not on school segregation. Yeah. You know, look, I, I, when you think about the significance of Brown in American history. Brown was really a moment where the Supreme Court weighed in on the illegitimacy mm -hmm. of the notion of separate but equal. Right. Brown ushered in a set of political changes and policy changes around um, segregation uh, that were transformative for society. Right. So when you right. think about... It invalidated Plessy. 
Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So when you think about the election of President Obama, when you think about uh, the number of African-American CEOs that we have, when you think about um, the number of African-American students who have had access to right. higher ed institutions around the country, uh, you know, there, there's a transformative yeah. impact of Brown, the work that Thurgood Marshall did, the work of the civil rights movement that, that one, you know, has to be in awe of mm -hmm. what was what was accomplished. That said, on the particular issue of, of school desegregation, um, as you say, it took years to really get going. Mm -hmm. um, implementation was certainly uneven around the country. Um, and then you had a lot of pushback, particularly interestingly in northeastern and midwestern right. cities. Yeah, people think right? it's all in the south. Yeah, yeah, not yeah. True. yeah. there's a lot of pushback. Um, there's been a lot of backsliding over the last couple of decades. Uh, part of that is about the Supreme Court, and I think some badly decided Supreme Court cases, including the Milliken case, which essentially said, you know, unless you had folks... This was in the 70s. This was, in the, this was in the 70s, and, yeah. the, and that case was about uh, Detroit schools and the suburbs around Detroit and the question of whether or not um, you could kind of tackle segregation by including the suburban districts. Mm -hmm. And essentially the Supreme Court said, it's a bit of a simplification, but essentially the Supreme Court said, well, unless you could prove that the folks in those suburban districts got together and said, we're gonna create this district in order to protect segregation, you can't include that. Right. Tough to and prove. Tough to <laughs> prove. Unless there's a memo saying, we did a this. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But the effects, were undeniable. Right. And so when the Supreme Court said, well, you can't, you can't bring a regional solution, mm -hmm. that really slowed the effectiveness yeah. of efforts to, to integrate schools because then you had this just acceleration of white flight from cities to the suburbs, leaving the cities with uh, student populations that are overwhelmingly students of color and concentrated right. poverty, right. and then these uh, affluent um, white suburban communities. Yeah. So we, we saw a lot of slowing, then the Reagan administration uh, backed away from a lot of civil rights enforcement, and you really had efforts to advance integration kind of peter out in the, in the 80s, mm -hmm. and then you've seen backsliding, as we've talked about around the country in yeah. the period since. So no, we haven't made enough progress, but the thing that makes me hopeful is that when you talk to young parents, when you talk to parents in their 20s and 30s about what they hope for for their kids, mm -hmm. they want their kids to have an experience yeah. with diversity. Very they true. want their kids to have diverse friends. Uh, they want their kids to be prepared to succeed in a diverse workforce. And so I do think there's a, an opportunity, a window of opportunity, and you know what you were doing in Dallas what folks are doing in San Antonio, those are very promising efforts, and we, yeah. we need to cheer folks on and support them. Yeah, well said. Good to end on a hopeful message. And um, one one reflection on the on the Dallas piece that I think highlights exactly what you were talking about, that folks are looking for this. And so we had, when we were creating one of our, uh, one of our new model schools, the STEAM school, um, we reserved 50% of the seats for kids on free and reduced lunch and then 50% of the seats for kids not eligible for free and reduced lunch. And so we knew that we were going to do this. Um, and then the decision w came where, okay, how much are we going to publicize this, right? Is it going to be a sentence in the application or are we going to make this a selling point? Yes, STEAM is, the, is a selling point, but are we going to make this 50-50 structure a selling point for the community? Or are we just going to kind of emphasize other mm. things? 
And we made the decision that, you know what, this is going to be a selling point of the school. And we had so many parents from, from many different backgrounds say, this was a selling point for us. This didn't scare us away. This is the thing we were looking for that we couldn't find anywhere else. And so I think that it's, you know, it speaks to exactly what you're talking about, that we are, I think as a country, we're increasingly ready for this. It just requires some intentionality on behalf of the school systems and also on, on the cities and, and uh, other folks that deal in housing policy to, to make these, these proof points happen so that folks can make that decision. So... Well, thanks, sir. I, I appreciate this. This was a really good conversation. Thank you. We're going to go do a panel about it uh, yeah. right after this. So we're going to keep the conversation going. But, but uh, thanks a lot. I think our listeners will, will learn a lot. Um, I would also urge our listeners to check out Secretary King's current organization, the Education Trust. The website is edtrust.org. edtrust.org. They're doing a lot of tremendous work that I would really encourage you all to, to check out. Um, and yeah, thanks again, sir. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity.